Um, well, my friends, uh, I know a lot of you are visitors here today. We are so very grateful to have you here, not so much uh, to listen to me, but really to uh, support your family members and friends in the way you did. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, I'll just remind you, so very important uh, to encourage them in their faith as they continue to walk, as they continue to grow. They've been probably looking to you as an example, or they may be praying for you that you would come to know the Lord as well. So I just encourage you and your families as you walk with him, you and your group of friends. We have been studying the book of Acts here. We're going to do that again today. We'll, we'll have once more a little bit of a shorter study today uh, because of time. Uh, but if you would, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 27. We'll be finishing the chapter today and doing a little bit of the next chapter. If you don't have a paper Bible in front of you, I'm sure you could bring it up on your, uh, your iPhone or something like that. It's important, I think, uh, to be seeing the words as we're studying them, to be meditating on them, considering them as well, and certainly knowing that I'm not just making stuff up here. Uh, the words are right there in the text. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the time to worship you in song, and I, I think of that one song in particular about glorifying your name. And Father, we know that we have been created to be in fellowship with you and to give you the glory that you deserve. And so, Lord, as we uh, seek you now in your word, we want to have a greater understanding of who you are, what you desire from us. We want your heart to become our heart because we know, we believe that in that, you make us more into the image of your son. And in that, you're glorified. And so, Lord, whether it's uh, the deeds we do, the things we say, even if it's just the attitude of our hearts, we want it to glorify you. And use your word to accomplish that purpose, to, to drive us a little bit closer to that in all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Acts, it looks again at the first century church, first 30 or so years following uh, the time of Christ when he was walking here on the earth. And we have been looking at the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it went forth in uh, Jerusalem beyond that group of about 120, certainly beyond the 12 and uh, to about 120 or so. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming and falling and bringing people into relationship with Christ. We saw how the gospel went forth into some of those neighboring communities of different people, the Samaritans and Judea. And then ultimately how it began to go forth, many of the times through the Apostle Paul, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here as we are in the final chapter or so of the book of Acts, we have entered into Paul's missionary journey to Rome. Missionary, we should always include that in quotation marks because Paul was a prisoner, you may remember, of the Roman Empire. But he saw his life, whether he was going on his own, paying his own bill, or somebody else was putting him in chains and bringing him there, he saw his life as a missionary and an opportunity for him to communicate the gospel to others. And for a few weeks now, we have been tracing this journey, which doesn't tell us exactly how long it was for, but three, four months or so, uh, out there in the open sea, stopping at some ports here and there. And we learned that it, is a, it was a perilous journey for the Apostle Paul. 
and so far and in a number of ways to come, some of which we'll see today. Paul and the other folks on the ship, remember there were 276 on them of them on this freighter ship. Paul and them were at sea fighting and fighting just to stay alive. They encountered hurricane winds, we saw that. They encountered devastating waves caused by those winds. They found themselves for a period of time without the aid of the stars and the sun, navigational techniques. They found themselves without the aid of those. We learned that they drifted aimlessly for a period of time. We saw that they were very much fearful that they were going to run aground in the dangerous coast off of northern Africa. Things were not looking good for this voyage. In fact, we learned in chapter 27, verse 20, that all aboard the ship uh, gave up hope. It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But you remember, it was just then, right then, that the Lord came and ministered to Paul. It was in the form of an angel. He came and he ministered. He reminded Paul of God's presence in Paul's life. You're not alone out here, Paul. God is with you. He hasn't abandoned you. He, that angel reminded Paul of the mission that Paul had. You will go to Rome. You will stand before Caesar, and you will testify to my name. Now, he didn't give Paul all of the answers, but he did affirm to the apostle that I'm with you, I haven't abandoned you, and you still have things for me to accomplish. And that word of encouragement, it didn't solve all of Paul's problems. As a matter of fact, things get even worse. It didn't solve all of Paul's problems, but it did give Paul and the others the strength that they needed to persevere and to carry on in the midst of their trial. And that's what God does always in our lives. As we turn our eyes off of the events that are around us and we put them back on him and we're reminded of what we know to be true. I haven't abandoned you. I have a purpose for you. I will be with you. It gives us perspective to carry on. And many times it's to carry on for another week, another month, another year. Sometimes it's enough just to carry on for the, the rest of my work shift until I get out of this place. He did that with the Apostle Paul. Now we could pick up today in verse 39. Chapter 27, verse 39. It says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But... Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, the Roman guard, the leader, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Now, you remember in our last study that they realized they were getting closer to the land. We don't know why. Maybe they heard waves crashing. Maybe they heard birds or something and figured they're not going to be out in the middle of the ocean. One way or the other, though, these experienced sailors realized we're getting closer and closer to the land. And so they took, as we saw in verse 27, they took a sounding um, 
actually verse 28, they took a sounding, dropping a heavy weight with a rope down into the water to see how far down it goes, how deep the water is. They learned that it was 20, 20 fathoms deep, 120 feet. A little while later, they do it again. This time they discover they're 90 feet deep. They're getting closer to land. Unless they break up, they decide by hitting rocks and so on, they decide let's drop anchor here. We'll wait for daylight. We'll be able to see what is ahead of us and we'll make a better decision at that particular point in time. Verse 29 tells us that they let down the four anchors and they prayed for the day to come. Well, as we come now to verse 39, the daylight has indeed come. And they are now able to see what is at least what is within proximity to them, which is land. Luke specifically in verse 39, he records that they can see a bay is ahead of them and that the bay has a beach. And so in the, with the scope there of daylight, they're able to come up with a plan. The plan is, let's run this ship up onto that beach. And then we can all get off and we'll figure out what we're going to do there. If you look at chapter 28 for a minute, look at verse 1. The name of this island, this beach, is given to us in that chapter. It's the island of Malta. And that's kind of a fitting name for what these guys have been experiencing. Malta, it means refuge. And this land is a welcomed refuge after weeks and perhaps months of being tossed by the sea to finally have somewhere where they can get off this boat and they can walk on dry ground would indeed be a refuge, a refuge to them. Now Malta, interesting, you may recall, maybe you remember, if we had maps, we'd throw them up there. Um, the last land that they had bid on was Crete, the island of Crete. You may remember there that they landed at Fair Havens, which was anything but fair, a fair haven. They, I'm not spending the winter in this lousy place. And so they decided to take a chance even though they had clearly entered into the dangerous sealing, uh, season of sailing to make it to the other end of the island of Crete. Well, they sailed right past that. That was a little town that was called Phoenix, uh, about 40 miles away from Fairhaven. Here they are now at the island of Malta. That's about 600 miles away. They are tremendously off course from where they thought they were. They had been drifting. And the interesting thing, if, if they didn't hit Malta, the next area of land they probably would have hit would have been uh, northern Tunisia, northern Africa, which was another 200 miles away. And this ship is in a whole lot of trouble as it is. It almost certainly wouldn't made it there. And so they coincidentally bump into Malta, not by plan, and it's one more of those sort of very normal miracles that God does, that he would bring them to this particular place at, at, in the middle of the ocean there where they'll be able to be saved. Verse 40 goes on. It tells us they cut loose their anchors. They cast them off, it says. It says they run up the foresail. That would be the main sail. So now they're trying to get as much wind as they can, as much momentum as they can. And the reason being in verse 40 is so that they can run their ship as quickly as they can do so uh, up onto that beach. Unfortunately, 41 tells us things didn't go exactly as planned. Notice in 41, it tells us that the ship struck a reef and that that caused it to run aground. That basically means that though a portion of the ship may have been underwater, it was basically sitting up on top of this reef, sitting up on top of this rocks, and the waves are just crashing against this ship. 
And it tells us in verse 41 that it was broken up by the surf. It was just beaten by the waves. And this ship was starting to break. This ship was about to be destroyed. Now that presents a problem for the soldiers aboard this ship. Remember, this is a a private line, a freighter ship that was coming from northern Africa to make its way uh, to Rome uh, to bring grain to provide for the people there in Rome. But on this ship as well, some of the people that purchased tickets to get on there were the soldiers, were the policemen, so to speak. And they had a number of prisoners that were with them. Paul was one of them, but there were many other prisoners on this ship as well. And now that this boat is about to break up and everybody's about to go into the water and there is some land up ahead, these soldiers become very nervous that some of these prisoners are going to escape. They're going to get under the water. They're going to swim as far away as they can. They're going to get up on land and they're going to run into the woods and they'll get away. Now, for the soldiers, that was a very serious thing because the penalty for a soldier, if your prisoner got away, you paid the penalty for your prisoner. And you'll notice their decision then is let's just kill all the prisoners. That tells me that perhaps some of the prisoners had a death sentence awaiting ahead of them. And so they decide we're just going to kill all of these prisoners here so that we don't have to pay the sentence of them. I would think in such a circumstance, there might be some exceptions to the rule about if you lose a prisoner. I'm sorry, the ship broke. Uh, But apparently there are no exceptions. And so these guys are about to take the drastic measure of killing all of the prisoners, including the Apostle Paul. Now, we've already learned, both in our reading this morning, as well as in some of our past studies, that the, the person that was the head of the soldiers, the centurion, that he had taken a liking to the Apostle Paul. And as we see in verse 43, the centurion wished to save Paul alive. He didn't want Paul to be killed. Perhaps didn't care so much about the other prisoners, but he did care about the apostle Paul. And so verse 43 again, it says, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out, kept the soldiers from carrying out their plan. He ordered all aboard the ship, those who could swim to jump overboard first and to begin to make for land and the rest find a board or something that you can float in on planks or on pieces of the ship. And then notice what it says at the end of 44. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. God gave Paul favor in the eyes of this Roman centurion, who almost certainly wasn't a believer before this trip started and may or may not be a believer now based on his interaction with the Apostle Paul. But either way, God gave Paul favor with this Roman centurion, and that favor kept Paul and significantly, all of the other prisoners from being killed. I'll point out that the centurion unwittingly fulfilled the promise that God made to Paul. You remember uh, back in verse 23, verse 24, actually, of the same chapter, that there it said, And behold, God has granted you, Paul, all of those who sail with you. I opened up by talking about how the angel encouraged Paul That's the words that the angel finished his message with Paul. Paul, we're out here in the middle of this thing, but you're not going to die. And not only you, nobody on this ship is going to die. God has granted you and all those who sail with you their lives. The centurion unwittingly was used by God to accomplish God's purposes. The centurion very easily could have said, 
kill all the prisoners except Paul. Could have said that, right? And it wouldn't have changed the promise in, in, to Paul at least. But God saw to it that his word was fulfilled exactly as God said his word would be fulfilled. That not only would Paul remain alive, but that every single person aboard that ship would arrive. And I think a, a reminder to us here, not necessarily the purpose of the text, but certainly something we can glean from the text, and that is this, that God's word never fails. What God says he's going to do, God does. And he accomplished it exactly as he said he would in Paul's life and in the lives of everybody aboard that ship. Now chapter 28 continues, and I want to read just the opening six verses. It says, Now after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island we were on was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, and they welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and he put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. And while they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune coming to him, they changed their minds about him, saying instead that he was a god. Let's go back and consider. Notice how it begins, verse 1. It says, we were brought safely through. Now, after all of these experiences, safely is probably not the experience or the word I would use to describe the experience that they have had. But in, in fact, they are on land. They're no longer on the sea, and they're all alive. And so in that regard, they are safely aboard or on the land of the island of Malta. Malta is located just off the coast of Sicily today and, and even then. Uh, so some of you can picture the boot with the little soccer ball. That's Sicily um, there. Malta is not too far away from there. As experienced sailors, they would have run their trips to Rome in the past. Uh, and they would have certainly known the island of Malta. But the main port of Malta was on the northern side of the island. They had approached it from the southeastern side. And so when they get there, they're a little unfamiliar as to where they are and what island they are on. But soon they begin to discover, oh, we're here at Malta. Verse 2 goes on to point out that the native people showed us unusual kindness. And the reason they did is the rain had come down, it was getting cold, the people, you know, they're all coming out of the ocean. And so these guys, they light a fire and they do some other things. They treated them very kindly. Luke in the ESV uses the word, the native people. If you're reading the King James Version, perhaps another version like that, it'll say barbarous. And when we read barbarous, sometimes we think barbarians. Like these are natives in the sense of no civilization or something to that effect. That's, that's not the case. The word barbarous, as it's used in the King James, was meant to describe a person that did, was ignorant of the Greek language, didn't speak the Greek language. Luke's point in making this statement about the native people of the island, the people that live there on the island, is to describe that there is a language barrier that, ha that is initially something they're going to encounter. That'll come back into the story a little bit later. 
But these folks here, these native folks, they kindle a fire and they welcome them. Notice, or welcome us all, it says. Notice once more, Luke writing from the perspective, I felt the cold. I felt the wetness. I felt their kindness and experienced their kindness. Luke is right there with the Apostle Paul. And he goes from there in verse 3, and he tells us of an account that occurred there right on the edge of the beach. As they're working to light a fire, it says in verse 3, when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks, he put them on the fire, and a viper came out because of the heat and fastened upon his hand. Now, in my notes, I jotted down here, if I were Paul, this might be what I'm thinking. Really, God? Really? I haven't had enough difficulty already today that now I have to get bitten by a snake? Now, I don't know if that's what Paul was thinking, but I suspect it's what a lot of us might be thinking in a situation like that. I, I think I found a, an interesting thing in my own life. I, sometimes I can handle really big things. Big things come in, they weigh on me, you learn some tragic news or something like that. But then it's when the person cuts you off and somebody dinged your car and this thing, and those things get piled on top of the really big thing. Then it's the ding in my car that drives me nuts and I can't handle it. And I forget that I'm a Christian. And I'm like, and it's just because of the weight of those things. Here, what I'm noticing this about the Apostle Paul, you're going to see how Paul responds to that one more thing. That one more thing that causes us to say, you know what, God, I, I can't take any more of this. I'm done. Or to qu begin to question God. Really? Why would you do this to me, God? So here's Paul. He had just come through the sea. He's on the land. And now a snake comes and bites him, specifically a viper. Now, before commenting on this additional difficulty, please don't miss this point. Notice what Paul is doing. The Apostle Paul wrote about half of our New Testament. The Apostle Paul. He's out picking up sticks for other, with others and for himself and for others. And so you picture the scene. There's 276 passengers that are making their way onto the land. We've learned that in a previous verse, that not one of them was lost. They're there on the shore. There's all of the native people that have come out, and they're showing them unusual kindness that it said. And so surely, if the Apostle Paul didn't hop to it and get to work, surely somebody else would have done it. Somebody else would have gathered sticks. Somebody else would have started a fire or a series of fires. But notice this about the Apostle Paul. Again, the Apostle Paul writer of over half or close to half of our New Testament. He didn't just sit back and let others serve him. He didn't just sit back and say to himself, well, look, it's not my problem. I don't even want to be here. I'm a prisoner. And so I don't want to be here. I ain't doing anything to help others. That's not what he does. I had an old friend who used to say, talk about grabbing a glove and getting into the game. And the Apostle Paul did that. He grabbed the glove and he got in the game. And he began serving other people. He didn't sit back. He didn't wait to be told what needed to be done. He observed the situation. He saw the need, and he proceeded to do what he could to meet that need. And again, this is the Apostle Paul. He was, the man that he was a man that had the heart of a servant. And I think that should be a word of exhortation to all of us, but particularly to any of us that think that certain tasks might be beneath us. Well, that's a job that that guy does, or that's a job that that person over there should do. I don't do those types of jobs. You need me to come up and speak? I can do that. You need me to be highly honored? I can do that. 
but those other jobs are beneath me, not for the Apostle Paul. As great a man as the Apostle Paul was, he was not ashamed to be used in even the smallest of ways. I admire what William Barclay said about this. He said it this way. He said, it's only the little man who refuses to do the little task. Paul was a great man. And he embraced whatever task was before him as he observed and how he might be able to meet that need. And so we come back now. Paul is out there serving. He's trying to help others. And as a direct result of serving, the Apostle Paul gets bitten by this viper. Now, a viper, most of us just looking at it would call it a snake, but it's, apparently it's a unique snake. It has uh, long venom-injecting fangs. I am learning a ton uh, by, about how to sail and what snakes are. Uh, as I study the book of Acts, but a viper in particular has two fangs, they're hollow, and they have venom inside of them. And they will latch on to you, and they'll get that venom inside of you. And so that's what latches on to the Apostle Paul. It looked like a, a stick, it was in the sticks, thrown onto the fire, it jumps out, and Paul's the cause of all my problems, and it bites Paul. Here is Paul, trying to do the right thing, trying to help others as a servant would do, and then this bad thing happens to him. And I point it out because it's important for each of us to know this. Sometimes bad things happen to quote-unquote good people. Sometimes bad things happen to quote-unquote good people. And I'm careful to put good in quotations because, of course, we know that the Scripture says that there are none that are good, not even one. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. Mark chapter 10, only God alone is good. We know that to be the case. But here, what my point is this. Paul wasn't doing some bad thing that he was being punished for. Paul wasn't some particularly bad person that he was being punished for. He was actually doing a good thing. He was serving other people. And he experienced a bad consequence or situation. Paul was faithfully serving God and others, but that did not keep him from this trial. It's interesting to note the way the native people of the island interpret Paul's misfortune. Look what it says in verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. He escaped the sea, but justice has not allowed for him to live. The inhabitants of the island, I think they demonstrated a belief that a lot of people intrinsically have. Maybe you and I do. Maybe some of us here. And that's the belief that bad things only happen to, quote, bad people. Of course, we know that bad things happen to all people because we live in a fallen world. And as far as we know, these islanders had never even spoken a single word to the Apostle Paul. And yet, based on a few minutes of observing him, they were convinced that he was a murderer because the viper latched onto him. I think we can safely call that a snap judgment. It's a hasty decision or opinion. We need to be careful with snap judgments. We're almost always wrong when we make a snap judgment. Or at best, we're 50-50. And 50-50 is not very good. You might be right, you might be wrong. They made a snap judgment here. They say this, though he escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Your version might use the word vengeance has not allowed him to, to live. The Greek word that is used there is a word which roughly transliterates into our language, decay. 
And DK was a, a Greek goddess. She was the Greek goddess of justice in that era. And so essentially what they're saying is not so much justice in the sense of liberty and justice for all, but justice is in the sense of the gods. The gods have not allowed this man to live. They have caught up with him. He may have escaped the ocean and the sea, but DK would not allow him to get away with whatever his sin might be. And that's why now he is suffering and is about to die because he was bitten by this viper. Now, here's a question. First off, we know that's not what's going on at all, right? We know that. We've read a couple of verses later. Here's the question. Can suffering in our lives be traced back to sin, as they seem to be saying it is? Well, in reality, in one sense, yes. Suffering in our lives can be traced back to sin because all suffering in our lives is the result of sin in this world. This is what theologians will call common suffering. Now, that's not necessarily my sin. It's not necessarily your sin for which I'm directly being punished or you're directly being punished. But because with sin came a fallenness in our world, and that impacts everything. And so, yes, suffering in our lives can be traced back to sin because all suffering is the result of sin. In addition to that, there are also times of suffering that we experience that are the direct result of some sort of sin that we have allowed ourselves to get involved in. Sometimes we go astray and God in his mercy allows us to experience the consequences of those decisions and many times those consequences hurt. We suffer because of our sins sometimes. Think for a moment if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. This is a fellow that took all of the money that he had and he went out and he lived in riotous living and he spent all of his money and he got himself into trouble and he was suffering as a result of the choices that he made. I said earlier that sometimes God in his mercy allows us to experience the consequences of our sinful decisions. The reason we discovered in that story of the prodigal that we might come to our senses. God allows it that we might come to our senses. Luke chapter 15 says, But when the man came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he realized all that was going on, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to provide for them, but I perish here in hunger? You see, his difficulties caused him to think clearly. He came to his senses. He realized God used the suffering in his life. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this, for our, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them to do, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He goes on, for the moment all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasure, pleasurable. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering came into the life of the prodigal, that he would come to his senses. God disciplines us, so, and it oftentimes hurts. We suffer, but it's with the purpose of producing within us, as it says in Hebrews, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That type of suffering is what theologians call corrective suffering. And so we have common suffering that everybody experiences. We have corrective suffering that God brings into our lives as the name implies, to correct us. 
And the last type, the third type, is what we might call constructive suffering. As the word implies, God is something trying to build something. He's trying to construct something. This comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5. It says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Sometimes God allows for suffering to come in our lives that we might grow. And if we respond properly to that suffering, it has the ability to produce within us endurance and hope and ultimately a character. And so my point in all of this is these islanders made a mistake by coming to sort of this snap judgment. We need to be careful of the snap judgment that says that person must be doing something wrong, which is causing God to be angry with them. God may very well be showing them his mercy and his love with his pur- with the purpose of creating in them the beautiful character traits of perseverance and character and hope. His desire for us, which is always better than our desire for ourselves, his desire for us is to transform us into the image of his son. And suffering is one of the means whereby God accomplishes that. Now, going back to our passage and wrapping up our time this morning, look again at verse 5. It says, Paul, however, shook off the creature, shook it off into the fire, and he suffered no harm. Notice Paul's reaction. It seems very calm and very unconcerned. He's not freaking out. He's not saying things like, really, God? I can't believe this. I can't take any more of this, God. Very calm, very unconcerned. He literally shakes off the difficulty, which in this case is the viper, and he continued on with what he was doing. He didn't let this annoyance, which could have killed him, he didn't let it bother him. He didn't scream, why God? He didn't say, I can't take any more of this. He simply shook it off and he continued with what it was that God had called him to do. Luke says there that he suffered no harm. I imagine it hurt a bit. The sting of something biting you probably hurt a bit. But there were no lasting ill effects from the venomous viper that impacted him. And of course there were no lasting uh, impact from the venomous viper because clearly God didn't deliver him from the sea to bring him to this island that he would be bitten by a snake and die. God promised he would get to Rome, that he would testify to the Caesar there, and no snake was going to thwart the promise of God to accomplish that. This is exactly what Jesus said would occur uh, in the lives of some of his servants. You remember Jesus? Maybe you do, I don't know. But toward the end of his life, this is what we call the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Just before Jesus made that statement that a lot of us are very familiar with, he said this. He said, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then he said this, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. I think every specific one of those instances Paul experienced, with maybe the exception of the deadly poison. Now, this doesn't mean 
that we put God to the test. It doesn't mean that we play around with poisonous snakes. It doesn't mean we have these services to show how powerful God is that we're going to play with these poisonous snakes and none of us are going to die. There's examples of that that have happened where people have died from doing it. But what I think the Lord is saying here and what Paul is experiencing here is that sometimes God will supernaturally protect his servants in ways that defy natural order. And that's what he did here with the Apostle Paul. Paul was going about his ministry, going and serving. He wasn't looking for snakes. Hey, everybody, watch this. But in the course of his ministry, this occurred, and the Lord intervened and protected him. As we said, he shook it off, verse 6. And while they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, uh, that never happened. They waited a long time and saw no misfortune. So now notice they changed their minds. You know what? This guy's not a murderer. He's a God. Think of that. One moment, clearly this guy is a murderer. The next moment, I mean, clearly this guy is a God. It speaks to us of the fickleness of humanity, the changeableness of mankind's opinions toward a person. In their mind, Paul was either terribly evil or he was on par with the gods. The truth as it does with most people, lie somewhere in between. But it's one more example in our Bibles of the fickleness and the changeableness of the human heart and mind. And so why we cannot fully entrust ourselves to others and their opinions and how that forms the type of person that we are, because it's very fickle. And so with that, I invite you to come back next week to find the exciting conclusion to the book of Acts after a year and a half together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word. Lord, earlier we, we spent some time baptizing some folks. Because the word of God has the ability to speak truth and their lives were changed. And Lord, this morning as we consider the word, we know that all scripture is useful for teaching and training we know that it's God-breathed, and so we pray that that same work that did a changing work in those folks that got baptized would do a changing work within each one of us as well. Lord, that you would take certain aspects of the message today, little parts of it, that need to speak to each one of us, maybe in a slightly different way, but that our eyes would be further on, furthered upon you. We'd fix them more on you to run our race a little more unhindered today and this week. Until we meet again, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.